springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Many bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine & More. Cheers! This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. From burnout and exhaustion to joy and fulfillment. Through the act of serving consciously, it's time to rediscover your passion. It's live with Elizabeth and guests on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Serving Consciously. This hour, as you know, is about having a conversation, really, a conversation about what it means to be of service in the world. And we know that there's a number of factors that can get in the way of joyful and conscious service. I like to think of service as an energy that guides and influences our actions with each other. And I've come to realize that we really all are here to serve each other. Some of us know that, you know, that that's translated into a professional role, a traditional role, And some of us are aware of the fact that we are in service to the people that we love. So whether it's budgets or being overworked or maybe limiting perspectives in our society, I believe that it's important that we remember that we do have the power to make adjustments and we do have the power to affect the systems and structures we find ourselves in and the power to determine what's meaningful and fulfilling for ourselves as service providers in the world. You do have something so valuable to contribute that only you can And it's in your power to discover what that is and allow it to guide your particular style of service. And that's what these conversations are all about. Please check out my website at servingconsciously.com. You'll find uh, resources and material there, um, links to the previous shows of Serving Consciously that you can access. And you can also connect with me through the website to be able to stay informed about any upcoming events. So this is our last conversation in Serving Consciously for 2018, and I just want to take the opportunity right now to extend my warmest wishes for a prosperous, love-filled, and joyous new year to everyone. I'm so grateful that you've uh, followed along the program and that you've joined us again here today. So today we're trying, we're going to be tying together a few themes that we've discussed on the show over the past year, but we're going to do it through a new lens, through a model for compassion developed, or perhaps it's better to say birthed, through my guest today, Ruth Diaz. And I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to Ruth. Ruth Diaz is a counselor, organizational consultant, and the founder of Returning to Compassion, a social movement and organizational consulting center that has an active presence online and on the ground. Returning to Compassion is here to support the world in remembering the word human as an opportunity instead of an excuse. And I love that, Ruth. Ruth has worked in a, in a variety of roles within both organizational and private settings throughout her career and brings her wisdom as a public speaker, psychotherapist, and organizational trainer by teaching a relationship model that shows us how to return to a sense of belonging and connection when we find ourselves in any and all stages of conflict and disconnect. The Returning to Compassion model explains the well-known drama triangle in a new way to include the role of the bystander and how human emotions are more connecting than we were taught to believe. The model is an eye-catching visual that at first strikes most people as a four-leaf clover instead of a map on compassion. 
the first layer of the model that explains scarcity or a belief that there's not enough, started to formulate in Ruth's mind as early as 2006 when Ruth was working at a 900-bed homeless shelter in New York City. In 2015, the visual version that shows how we go from scarcity to abundance and back again was completed while Ruth was working in an inpatient psychiatric hospital with those who were having such a difficult time maintaining safe boundaries with their bodies and others around them that were being held against their will. The model, which identifies roles like bully, victim, and hero bystander, gave children and other adults at the hospital the chance to stay conscious of their emotions and notice how their feelings were impacting their experience with each other. It shows how our emotions are actually connecting us with each other, even if we feel like there's a disconnect. The children's ward helped to de- help develop the new roles they wanted to choose consciously and gave each of them symbols. For example, the villain or bully is reframed as a challenger and reminds all of us that when we feel frustrated, we get to remember to use the clarity of our discomfort to creatively offer the bite-sized pieces to those we feel conflicted around. These conscious challenges can bring us all back to our hearts. The villain or bully was given the symbol of the spiral because the spiral captures our focus and helps us come back to our center. Ruth spends her time these days working with a variety of groups and leaders who are practicing interpersonal resiliency and striving to return to compassion within themselves and throughout their lives in every way. Ruth's vision is to bring this model to the world at a level where every human being will be able to easily access it and adapt it to their own culture and language. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you so much for being here Mm. today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation. Ruth and I have had a couple of personal Mm -hmm. conversations as we were planning for the show, and um, we have so many points of common ground, I think, and really Mm -hmm. we're speaking the same language. So I'm really excited about exploring this with you today. And I'm wondering, maybe we can start with this. How did you come to choose the name Returning to Compassion? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. And again, thank you for your invitation to be here. I was mostly just looking forward to having another conversation with you, Elizabeth. You are (laughs) very good at your job, and I have enjoyed our conversation so far. Uh, Yeah, yeah, thank you. Returning to Compassion was chosen because I enjoy stories. And when I started to watch how people responded in understanding the polarities that that we all get stuck in, where we get angry or sad or worried or even feel guilty. And watching them come back to their hearts was a place I became more compassionate. And it felt like we go into this stance where we're separating from each other. And returning to compassion is about saying, wait, I choose difference. And how do I turn around and look at this and feel this and know this experience or person or conflict differently so that I can find connection and meaning and a sense of safety again in it. I love that because it's really looking at how you take that energy of compassion and not only look through the eyes of compassion, allow yourself to feel it and then to express that in your interactions with other people. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So how how far back do you remember thinking about relationship polarities? Because really that's a a lot of what your focus is in this model is around Mm -hmm. closing that gap, right? Yes, absolutely. So anybody who knows me personally or professionally, often you will see me drawing these infinity loops in the air when I'm talking. Um, 
the idea of polarities on a global scale in the most concrete sense is the North and South Pole. Polarities are just the opposite sides of things. And um, back all the way in 2006, um, while I was doing a graduate degree in social work in New York City, I was thinking about them just looking at words and even emotional states and how when you go and find the roots of that word, the antonym of that word or the opposite, just was very puzzling to me of how we kept using these words as if they were separate, but they seemed really connected, like shame and judgment. We, we kind of use those sometimes interchangeably, but they felt perfectly opposite and per perfectly synchronous, like on the tips of an infinity loop. So when I was a child, uh, the first place I found myself thinking about this was when I went on these road trips. I'm not sure if, if you did road trips as a kid, oh, yes. this, but <laughs> we did a lot of them and we didn't have any of the cell phones or the technology. And I had three siblings uh, stuck in a backseat car with me. This was before seatbelts were even always there. And um, you know, the person stuck in the middle was that's the most miserable seat because um, if if it was going well, you know, it was you could tolerate it. But if it wasn't going well, especially if the two people were fighting on either side, it was just a sense of being a bridge and not being able to escape that place where people were kind of wrestling with each other across your bodies. Yes, and what stuck, I noticed, in the, stuck in yeah, the middle with you. <laughs> stuck in the middle, exactly. What I noticed, because I was actually the middle child too, so this was often my seat, um, was that I seemed to have an invisible ball, is how I would think about it, an invisible ball of irritation or frustration. Mm -hmm. And there was this ball would travel throughout the car. So most people would be getting along fine, but somebody was always irritated the longer the trip went. And, and it never seemed to line up that everybody could be on the same page. And it just kind of started to fascinate me to watch that ball pass from sibling to parent to maybe three at once. Sometimes the ball would split in the air. <laughs> and people just start growling at each other. And, you know, everything is misunderstood. And then it goes back. To just one person and they get quiet and they cross their arms they look out the window and think you know I don't want to be a part of this family or whatever and that <laughs> kind of dynamic that kept going all through these road trips um, puzzled me and I thought about it even when I wasn't on them like how is this happening how are we transferring these emotions between each other and and how when I feel happy then other people might just feel bored or sad even though they were just happy a second ago. Yes. So that, that was the beginning where I just started going, Something, something's transferring here that I can't even um, see with my eyes. But it's something that's so profoundly felt, isn't it? And, yeah. and I think I mean, you're really yeah. hitting on something that really, I mean, you know, yes, in this, this uh, show, we always talk about things in terms of how it impacts people who see themselves as being of service to other people. But this is something that really colors our lives, no matter what it is that we do, whether we see ourselves in service, whether we see ourselves in business or whatever it is, it colors our entire life. And it can happen between us and the people closest to us in our relationships or a stranger on the street. Yes. 
Yes. And, and that is where it became even more interesting to me as I developed my different skill sets as a therapist and both personal and professionally being involved in many kinds of um, conscious focused groups where people are coming together to not just focus on a task, but focus on the connection and yes. focus on understanding our internal processes and how those connect to each other. Um, I just started to notice what appeared to me when I, you know, kind of would zoom out and be in a classroom too long or be in a group too long. I would just, my eyes would soften and it would feel as if there was a ghost of sorts walking through the crowd. Right. And whoever it walked through next became growly and very obstinate and just saw how things went wrong. And every single group, it was a different person or, you know, it would bounce back between two people and it just blew me away. And then sometimes it would kind of like a wind, it would just kind of catch me up. And I was like, wow, I hate this group. I want to get out of this group. And <laughs> I had walked in, you know, a half hour earlier going, I love all these people. And I'm so glad that I get to come here. And so how that flips so quickly and, and can actually create decision making that splits us in half inside is it's my lifelong fascination. I don't think that'll ever go away. However, this returning to compassion effort and movement continues. Right. It's kind of beautiful to watch people get very tangled with each other and then find each other again and repair and build better bridges. I think that's a, it's the love dance of life kind of thing. Oh, for sure. And I love what you're saying. There's so many little tidbits there. I just want to highlight, <laughs> you know, first of all, you talked about how this evolved from a place of, you know, professional and personal integration. <laughs> and really it's fueled by a deep, deep, curiosity and fascination and I think that's got to be one of the most powerful if not the most powerful um, maybe in, in conjunction with love um, a motivator for the actions that we take and for you know how we maintain a focus in a certain direction when we're fueled by by love by fascination by curiosity we just keep moving in the direction of that of that, um, you know, quest, I guess it is following the breadcrumbs. Um, but the other thing too, and I, I was always fascinated by this as well, because so often people, you know, me included, I would have times in my life where I thought, well, if I don't agree, you know, if I'm not agreeing with what's happening in this little circle of people here, I'll just stay quiet, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then I'm not contributing then to the conflict that's happening yes. or the disconnect. Yes. But I've, I started to realize that, wait, no, there's an energetic vibration yes. contribution that when I'm sitting yes. somewhere and I don't want to be there, there's mm -hmm. the ghost that starts walking through the room, right? Exactly. Yeah, and your ghost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And because we all have them, right? So that's where yes. we can, we can, you know, really take a look at what's my intention here. So we sometimes feel like if I just show up physically, then I'm present and I'm there. But if in the back of our minds, it's like, oh, I wish I could get out of this thing. That is an energetic contribution that is being picked up. Even if we, if it's not tangible, it's being picked up within the crowd yes. and then how we are yes. also impacted, you know, by the other person who doesn't want to be there who, mm -hmm. or who has, you know, mm -hmm. other conflicts going on emotionally. We're so connected. That, that energy is huge. And all we, I mean, we can't take care of each other's energy, but we can certainly be in tune with our own and how we wish to show up, right? Yes, yes. I would say that you're spot on there. I, I have to, for the sake of my own profession and bridging, I love the idea of saying energy or energy in motion for emotion. Yes. 
Yes. And I would also say that it's a it's a visual nonverbal communication process. It sure is, isn't it? Constantly. Yeah. <laughs> including neurochemicals, you know, that are being released in our in our skin when we're feeling fear or trapped or in the fight flight response or we're yes. feeling a compulsive sense of um, need to fix something even if we're not invited into that role. Yes. And those fear responses create a ricochet effect in our bodies that is much louder than anything we are or are not saying. Isn't that and, the truth? Yeah, that's I believe so that's true. where group, yeah, group think comes from that place. Have you heard of that phenomenon? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, that, I totally agree. That makes so much sense because, you know, we are so focused on kind of the concrete, the physical, you know, mm-hmm. and really the, the bigger impact is coming from those sort of, what we're talking about here, unseen realms or the less tangible realms. But you're so right because, I mean, we pick up on, you know, we pick up on the energy, the feeling of emotion. I mean, that's what empathy is about, right? So for people who mm-hmm. are in service to each other, either that's come naturally or we're continuing to hone that skill to pick up on yeah. that energy. But we do see it. We do see it yeah. in people's expressions and body language and, and you know, other physical means of communication as well, right? That, that, go beyond the words that we're speaking. Yes. And I have had so many different types of providers who are working to hone a balance between the empathy and the self-care and and the serving of others. Talk to me about how they feel confused. You know, they've gone to school, they've learned the books, they have uh, passed the test, they've gotten the supervision. And yet when they go and they find somebody who is just very difficult to work with, they just want to crawl out of that room, you know, and, and whatever setting they're in. And often when people see this model, they start to recognize that we both have a projection of what's outside of us. And we also have an opportunity to bridge beyond that projection and learn something new. Even with people we would peg as a villain or a chronic hero that is fixing things whether or not we've asked them to, there's (laughs) always a different way to understand something that can soften us and bring not just empathy, but, but a new rhythm, a new connection that makes us feel inspired and stronger together. Absolutely. It, It feels like it's a path towards, you know, personal power being grounded mm-hmm. in your own Absolutely. sense of personal power because it's not yeah. about having that over anybody, but it's about yes. knowing it within, right? Like and being really grounded yeah. in that space that then creates the space for others to step into that as well. I want to go back exactly. to something in your introduction because I think this could be really, um, we could get really practical around this and we're, we're talking about it right now. So we talk about, for example, the villain or bully is reframed as a challenger, which I absolutely love and reminds all of us that when we feel frustrated, we get to remember to use the clarity of our discomfort to creatively offer the bite-sized pieces to those we feel conflicted around. Could we, mm-hmm. could, could we just dig a little deeper with that? Because I think mm-hmm. there's a really practical get in there for people. Yeah, thank you for that invitation. Um, one way when I teach about the bully or um, 
villain is to recognize that this person, first of all, we have all been a bully or villain in somebody else's eyes at some point in our lives. Yes. I've, I've taught this with enough people that um, I am yet to find somebody who ha- can prove with absolute certainty that they haven't been. And right. even if we, we believed in that moment that we were being a hero to ourselves or, or that we were just standing there and we weren't doing anything, we could <laughs> still be perceived as causing harm by others. And so just establishing that first. And so that allows us to bridge to that former self inside of us, like rings in a tree. We get to travel back to the part of us that still exists, that has that memory of going, oh, no, I'm in the wrong spot. I'm in the place where I'm being perceived as a villain or bully. And then we get to recognize that that is not necessarily the truth of who we are. And it is an opportunity to see how our own discomfort can be a map back to our heart and if it's a villain or bully action what we're doing is we're shoving too hard the villain or bully might say if if i don't break this pattern then it will never change and the challenger has a bit of a different goal the challenger is saying if i don't offer a challenge here in a bite-sized piece that fits for everybody around me um, then we're never going to find our heart. We're never going to get back to comfortable. And I just want to feel comfortable. And, and something has gone off here. Something is not working here. And so I'm going to find somebody who I think might be able to creatively engage with me in helping us get comfortable again. And anybody who might have just tuned in is going, you're talking about a bully and a target, you know, creatively <laughs> engage with me. Um, yes, I am. Because basically, one way to think about what's happening in that dynamic as a bully and a target is the bully is actually trusting in, in a twisted way, but still trusting this victim or target to show them a different way to respond to something that overwhelms that bully, traumatized them, or they watched in a previous moment. We're yes. reenacting what happened to us with the hope that whoever we're re- directing that energy at, that um, breaking kind of anger energy, however it looks, we're hoping that they show us a different way out of the tangle we're in. Yes. And this may not be at the conscious level of thought. No. Oh, here, no, I'm creatively going to yeah. target this person so they can show me something. Right. Like, this is happening yeah. on a yeah. much deeper or higher soul level and you know I love it because it reminds me of the idea of you know the mirror effect right so when we look at somebody else and and you know they're behaving in a way that you know goes against our grain or that is pushing our buttons or triggering us you know to take that opportunity to look at that and say you know just exactly what you said has there been a time in my life where I've behaved you know in this manner like can I understand this behavior through my own lens of experience, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then owning it, right? Like, well, I want to say one. I'm going to scratch that word. Embracing it, because I think a lot yes. of the times it's those parts of ourselves that live in the shadow, right? And sometimes okay. we say, "Oh, yes, I can remember when I behaved, you know, in a way that could be described as a bully." For example, mm-hmm. um, our ego 
may pop in there and try to kind of say, yeah, but, you know, and justify it and say, you know, the circumstance is different. But if we're able to just say, okay, I can capture that and then move into a space where we don't define ourselves or the other person by that behavior. Like, I really feel like what you're saying is, is about looking at the behavior and saying, okay, this is representing something, you know. Um, that's going on for this person, right? Or yeah. even if I'm looking at my own behavior, this behavior is representing something that's going on for me. I'm acting from from yes. a situation, from an experience, but it doesn't define yes. me, right? I can move yes. it out of this. I love that. Yeah, and that's exactly it. What we do is we, in in that activation of fear, or another way to think or understand fear is the idea of scarcity. Yeah, Scarcity is just the belief that there's not enough. There's not enough time to process this. There's not enough safety or resources. There's not enough supervision around me to make sure I don't get hurt. And so there's this contraction inside of us when we're in scarcity and fear. And we don't believe that positive or or beautiful things are happening here. And so we go from believing that this action is something, it's information, it's something about what this other person has experienced to this action represents this person's character. It mm-hmm. represents who they are. And the moment we make that leap, we, we create a something in the person that mm-hmm. we are fearing. We yes. make them an object or an archetype. And, and as soon as they become that, as one of my mentors many times said to me years ago, and, and she was quoting this, she said, from a Native American wisdom. Um, she said, the moment that I believe that I know who you are, I have murdered you in front of my eyes. Oh, that's beautiful. It's, that's it's beautiful. poignant. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the moment that I have believed that I have captured the wholeness of you, you are dead to me, basically. Because we are living beings in motion. Yes. Our emotion is the flow and the transferring of that connection that never is static, never stays the same. Yes. And you know, it's, it's just so beautiful because when I think about that in terms of, say, you know, relationships of service where you're providing service to somebody, um, it's, I mean, that's where the stigmas and the labels and the stereotypes mm-hmm. come yeah. into play, right? And and then a, yeah. an individual, say, who's, you know, experiencing poverty or who doesn't have a place to live becomes, you know, the poor, the homeless, mm-hmm. and it becomes one big the category yeah. and, and it dehumanizes people. And I think that that's so common. Yeah. And then in our personal relationships, we get to know somebody intimately and then we kind of stop exploring them, you know, quite yeah. often that can happen. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, I've known that person for 20 years and this is who they are. Yeah. And that's it. And then we miss yeah. that transformation. And it's also, yeah. I think, you know, our own transformation that's so easily missed as well. We don't pay attention to how we're shifting and, and growing and evolving. And, and we don't see the little nuanced, you know, um, yeah points of, of growth that are actually happening for us mm-hmm. in our lives. Mm-hmm. Oh, Including so- that, that growth, if you think about the cycle of a tree, in the wintertime, trees appear to die temporarily. You know, mm-hmm. every, all the leaves go away. They, they look completely inactive. And yet that is the time of the most growth for the roots. 
where all that sap gets pushed down underneath the soil and the roots really take the ground at a whole new level. And so the winter above ground is the spring below ground. Beautiful. I love that. Let's take a quick break and come back. I want to ask you about um, kind of personal responsibility within the dynamic that we were just um, talking about. And, uh, and so we'll, we'll come back and pick up there. You're listening to Serving Consciously. I'm Elizabeth Bishop, your host, and today we have Ruth Diaz with us, and we will be right back after this message. Is part of your life mission to be of service to others? Making a difference in the world is a tall order. You are the resource when it comes to serving humanity. Beyond taking care of yourself, learn to create self-connection in your life. Integrate who you are with what you do. Find a source of inspiration and energy that surpasses your wildest imagination. Register for the Self-Connection Series at www.elizabethbishopconsulting.com. Look under Programs and Services for details. Are you a helping professional looking for inspiration, resources, and community? Visit socialworkhelper.com for relevant articles and learning opportunities. Connect with other difference makers in the world. Socialworkhelper.com Welcome back to Serving Consciously, everyone. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bishop, and today I've been speaking with Ruth Diaz about her um, model and her work in the world called Returning to Compassion. And it's just been oh, such a such a wonderful conversation so far, Ruth. I'm excited to dive back Absolutely. in. So before break, we were talking about this idea of, you know, the bully, the villain, and, you know, the target or, you know, quote unquote, the victim and, and reframing, you know, say the bully as a challenger and looking at the connection between, you know, the experience that people have had, the actions that are, um, you know, that we see in the world and how that doesn't define the individual, but how it actually gives us context for what they're going through. 
And I feel like, you know, we talked about, you were talking about how when we define a person by that and, and you know, that beautiful quote that you shared around, as soon as I feel that I know who you are, I've murdered you before my eyes, like kind of shutting down the opportunity to see anything mm-hmm. different, which is, yeah. I think, so powerful. When we put people in boxes, mm-hmm. I like to think of it that way. We put someone in a box, mm-hmm. that's how we define them, that's how we see them. And then it wouldn't matter if they completely transformed from the inside out or or outside in that we would even notice it because yeah. they're in the box that we've created in our minds. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, sometimes one of the the other barriers that can get in the way is that you know, we might be looking at a situation and striving for this understanding and then recognize that the other person doesn't have the awareness about, you know, in the same way that we do or isn't looking at it in the same mm-hmm. way that we do. So who has the responsibility to show up differently in these kinds of scenarios and dynamics? That's a great question. And the best answer is probably going to come from teaching this model to you and the audience by you guys getting to sign up through my website for a workshop. I'll have those digitally and in person. However, what I can do over the the radio here is to just if we can kind of make it a story to give it a little more context or more specifically let's let's go back to where this model was born which was an inpatient psychiatric hospital and mostly was practiced um or i guess i had the most fun practicing this model on the children's board doing a group with about 22 children Uh, sometimes up to 28, and I had less than an hour once a week to help these kiddos center themselves and find some kind of healing learning experience. Mm -hmm. And then I wasn't really with them that much other than that hour. And I remember very viscerally in my body a day where I was trying to find a way to connect with these kids because they were in such fight-flight responses with the staff in the room and so activated and on medication. And some of them had bandages on their bodies. And it just was a, a beautiful but motley crew of kiddos, you know. Right. And I... And I remember just saying, well, let me just get a sense of who's here. So I just put my hand up to Nira and I said, how many here identify as being a bully in their life? And probably 90% or more, 20 or more of those kids raised their hand. And I saw that with some overwhelm. And then I looked at their faces and they were all smiling very proudly when they were raising their hands. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, dear. this is where the bullies go sometimes I guess and um and they loved that they had that power in their world they found themselves to be a superstar even if it was the super villain and so the organization that I had worked with before that called Stand for Courage which is an amazing organization around uh, positive focus uh, bullying prevention and interventions had really been about addressing the bystander and trying to activate them. But here I was in a room full of proudly identified bullies. Mm -hmm. And that Stand for Courage piece wasn't going to work as well. So this is where the model was born. Because what I got to do is start to say, well, I actually technically have the most power in the room in this moment, even if it's 
temporary and elected. And for me to polarize with these kiddos and say, well, you shouldn't be the bully or, you know, you need, you need a different life outcome here. Like, you know, this, yeah, good luck this with is that. not a good career choice, right? This would not have worked. These kiddos were very ill, you know, and they, they had trouble just staying in the room at times. And so one of the ways that we got to take ownership of our mistakes and the way I frame mistakes is mistakes are things where we think we're going to have one outcome and it changes midway through the process. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sometimes people get hurt. So I maybe as a child might hit somebody um, because I want them to stop looking at me the way they're looking at me. Yeah. And I'm hoping that they're going to say, oops, I'm sorry, I'll do that different. And instead they get me in trouble because I did something to get in trouble and I end up in the principal's office. You know, I technically don't have that child looking at me anymore, but I'm now considered and starting to be labeled as a bully. Mm -hmm. So personal responsibility comes from recognizing the ingredients that we all have in the room that contribute to conflict. And the only way we can recognize those ingredients is to go from a place of judgment towards self or others and shame towards self or others back into a place of curiosity, of trust, back into a place of wondering how I can do that better next time. Yes. And, and so one of the things that I did on this board to kind of illustrate this and grab the kiddos' attention in the beginning is I had the director of this, this ward play a, a little mock play with me that they didn't know was mock. I had the director come in during the group and start uh, making fun of my shoes <laughs> and, and actually and, and cutting me down for them, saying, Ruth, this is really unprofessional. Those shoes are terrible. And why are you wearing these to work? And so I got to model. <laughs> the kids were just, you know, petrified. It was the stillest that room had ever been. And I got to really model that crestfallen piece of here's somebody in power over me. I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to slump my shoulders. I'm going to really model being that victim and feeling frozen and looking out at the door like I want to run away and um, looking at everyone else like you're being my bystanders and find, looking for my hero and there's nobody in the room. And then I got to put my head back up and step forward and put my hand on my heart and look her in the eyes and say, thank you for your feedback. These shoes mean a lot to me. They are my sister's shoes that she gave me and I've worn all over the world. And they're my sparkly gold shoes. They feel like my magic shoes. And I didn't realize how tattered they become because these shoes actually were really threadbare and tattered. <laughs> So I was sitting there going, I'm kind of making fun of my shoes at this point. But, you know, I got to own, like, these shoes are precious to me, and this might not be the right setting for them. So right. thank you for your feedback, and I, I will wear something different. And that doesn't mean I have to throw these shoes away or not wear them all the time. I just might not wear them to work next time. And then what was funny is this wasn't anticipated, but the kids still didn't know that this was a, you know, set up. And they all started jumping in and, and jumping up to look at the shoes because they couldn't all see them from the tables they were looking at. And 
And they started to defend me. Oh, her shoes are so cool. Those are the prettiest shoes. Like, why are you being so mean to her? And I looked at them and I said, I thought you guys were all bullies, you know? Yeah. (laughs) What are you doing? And they just said, well, it's not okay. You know, she can't treat you like that. And I said, thank you so much for defending me. And guess what? I actually asked her to come in here and do this. And so I can own this even more. I actually, in a way, was was using everybody here. And and so if anybody's a bully, it's me. And what did we learn? Even though I could have told you, it wouldn't have been as interesting. And what did we all learn here? And what the kids kind of reflected on in, in that moment that really stuck with me was it wasn't about the shoes at all. It was about trying to find a connection when there was a power differential, when there was a dynamic between us that felt separating and pushing through and putting my hand on my heart and saying, thank you, instead of how dare you, or this isn't appropriate, or could you please take me outside of the room next time before you try to humiliate me in front of a group of kids? Um, (laughs) I could have said all those things, but the most direct way was to lean into the pain of that. Yeah. And what was shocking to me was how much my body actually felt shame when she was saying this, even though I had asked her to, and we'd been giggling about it like a half hour before. Right. You know what? Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful example. Like it paints such a a gorgeous picture. And I think you touched on so many key Mm -hmm. things there. And as far as the personal responsibility element of it goes, to me, that was triggered at the point in your story where you noticed the smile of, you know, seemingly pride on the faces of those who identified themselves as a bully and realized, oh, I have to come at this from a a different kind of perspective, right? Um, You were the one who saw it, right? So I always feel like, you know, even if it's somebody else's behavior that we believe needs to change, if if we're the ones impacted by it, I mean, A lot of people can behave in a lot of different ways, all of us included, where we don't even notice the impact of our behavior on other people. So there's no impetus for us to to shift anything. It's working for us. So the person who identifies it, that it isn't working, is often in a state of personal responsibility. And I think you so beautifully modeled that and that example for people who feel like they are the target of a bully. (laughs) You, You showed how to stand in your power in that position as well, which is so beautiful. Because I and the polarity of the, you know, what we were talking about before, the the emotions and stuff. I almost, you know, I sort of was thinking when you were talking about this connection between pride and shame. Like if if these kids who identified with being a bully with a big smile on their face, mm-hmm. if they were to go into the alternative, which would be to feel bad about themselves because they yeah, were a yeah. bully what would that do to them, right? Exactly. The inside. So pride was the easier thing to identify with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well put. And when you say that, it it reminds me of how this group became uh, such a teaching for me in how we would close. And this is a tip for listeners and you. This is the easiest game to play, but it is very powerful. And I don't just do it with children. I do it with adults. Any kinds of groups that I have, we play what I call the appreciation game. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we throw an invisible ball of appreciation around the room. Adults and children, again, they participate. And this ball 
changes size midair, which is always kind of funny um, to see, you know, how big it's going to get. And then sometimes it can turn into a marble in someone else's hands when they catch it. <laughs> but when you are going to throw the appreciation game, the, the appreciation ball, sorry, you're going to target someone who is least expecting an appreciation from you and who will be most surprised in that moment to receive it. Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. So thank you. It's, it's a really fun game because what you're doing is you're flipping a fear-based room into a very alert room waiting to receive appreciation and, and watching the drama of who's going to appreciate, you know, how far are we going to stretch into appreciating the person who's least expecting it? And, and what would happen in that prideful place would start to melt when somebody, yeah. sometimes somebody would be acting out in the room or whatever. And I would call everybody and say, Hey, I think somebody needs an appreciation shower. And so everybody would pummel this child who was starting to stomp their feet or throw something with appreciation. And they would just get flooded with this. I see you. I see you, I see you, I see you. And it did not have to be, you know, these are kids. So we're not talking about, I see how you've grown up and done so many different things. It was, I like the color of your shirt and I have a shirt like that at home. I like that you smiled today and I haven't seen you smile before. I appreciate that you didn't kick me under the table today. And thank you for that. And, And that kiddo would then be so flooded with this I would try to get us to go back to our activity, but that kiddo would then throw the ball often to the person they had harmed the most in that room during that week. And they would say things that in a point system kind of, uh, or they call it a token economy, um, psychiatric system, they basically were outing themselves in a way that would make them lose all their privileges and possibly make them stay in the hospital longer. But this is what they would say hey, you know, child so-and-so, I appreciate you because you didn't tell anyone when I hit you twice this week. And by the way, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I can imagine, like you described this as being, you know, it's a fun game. I can imagine it was quite emotionally provoking as well. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And, and oh, watching yeah. people cry, sometimes for the first time I imagine in their life, from being flooded with gratitude. Oh. It was profound. It was oh. profound to see these kids start to just weep and not cover their eyes or run out of the room screaming. They just started to weep because they felt so awakened and enlivened and so relaxed and softened. And well, it's like, it's staff, like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. It's like turning on that light love, really turning on a shower of love that then just illuminates the, the darker part, right? And allows it to yeah. melt away and fall away yeah. in chunks. Yeah. And that, oh. the teaching there for me was that when we are in a place of shame, which is on the bottom axis of this model that I teach, shame is the place where we freeze inside, where the, where the bystander, where we just want to sink into the floor or wall and hide. And when we're in a place of shame, we have no voice. So we really can't apologize when we are truly involved in shame. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. According to Brene Brown, if guilt was a person and shame was a person, 
Guilt would say, oops, I made a mistake. Shame would say, I am the mistake. Yeah. If I believe that I am the mistake, I will not have a voice to change myself or try to repair anything. And this flood of appreciation seemed to buoy people and kiddos into a place where they got to choose differently. They went into a place of guilt, which was, oh, wow, that was, that was off. I shouldn't have done that. I can do better. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, because guilt is constructive, right? Guilt can help it, it to can. Yes. propel us out into yes. a different way of being. And guilt, it's a, it's a much easier place to be able to accept accept our part in something, right? And to, and to apologize or to make amends, yeah. whatever it might be. I love that. That's so powerful. Yeah. It's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to that personal responsibility again. So if you're the one in the room and you know that the other, that somebody else in the room is engulfed in shame, don't expect mm-hmm. them to suddenly emerge mm-hmm. at that. Take the yeah. responsibility to create a space yeah. where that's possible for the emergence yeah. to take place, right? Oh, exactly. so and I love that you shared that because we're not just talking about children. Children and youth are not the only bullies, <laughs> you know, or or targets, right? I mean, yeah. to me, childhood exactly. bullying just turns into you know harassment, adult workplace harassment. Later on in life, it's the same dynamic, and it's coming from the same seeds, right? Of of shame, of power identification, whatever it might be. Yeah. So the same unconscious privilege, you know, that as adults, the way this shows up really frequently is through something called microaggressions. Have you heard of that? Yes, I believe I have, but I'll allow you to explain it. (laughs) Yeah. So so microaggression is something that we do often unconsciously by mislabeling or redirecting the attention or focus in a way that increases a power differential instead of decreases it and can often harm someone who holds a minority status. And so a microaggression can be as simple as um, somebody who identifies as uh, differently gendered or a different sexual identity and just mislabeling them and saying he instead of she or they, that can be a microaggression. I have done that before. Sometimes I go unconscious in my words and how I clean that up, how I recognize it and choose to do better, that can either turn into a further microaggression because I can make too big of a deal out of it or it can turn into a bursting experience. And there's many other ways we do that. However, in adults, a lot of the ways we do that is by advice giving and by trying to fix people instead of instead of trusting that their path is as inspiring and true and trustworthy as ours. It's so true, right? I mean, it really comes down to, you know, openness, acceptance, willingness to understand, a curiosity to know, and really challenging our own assumptions and biases. And, you know, like we talked about in our last conversation, really looking at before we get focused on the external dance, you know, us with the world, us with other people, that we really focus on our own internal dance, that everything that we need to evolve through and learn about is available within us. And as we, you know, move through that process, then we show up and express in the world a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And that little bit differently 
I believe is the key to everything. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> everything is the little bit. We want to have these, you know, huge shows of change and and flowing differently and policies and whatever. And those are good. And they only happen when we do all the little bits inside of us. Instead yes. of taking a third deep belly breath when we feel frozen or we feel compulsively fix it or yeah. we believe that we are the answer and the answer isn't all of us. Exactly. And, you know, those those things that do happen, like you said, the structures or the policies or the legislation or whatever, they only have meaning if we are embracing them in that internal dance. They don't mean anything otherwise. You know, we can all be forced externally to behave a certain way. But if what's happening underneath that is the foundation of our behavior doesn't change, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't change. Yeah. I love that. It's the small, tiny little shifts that create the profoundest changes. I love it. Thank you so much, Ruth. That is what my, yeah, my Facebook page, Returning to Compassion, is about giving those bite-sized pieces, those little shifts, really high-quality content for, you know, we have quite a following at this point. Over 11,000 people are following this page, learning every day how to find a way to come back to compassion and practice that online and in their lives. And I want to invite you to join that if you haven't already. It's pretty fun. There's groups getting active and um, opportunities to join in some test groups for workshops and it's getting bigger. I love it. I have definitely joined in there. And so I have to take a closer look at all the things that have happened. I think that was how we connected. So I think I, I think that's that's how we connected right through Facebook. And then we just started messaging and talking. So it's perfect. Mm -hmm. So people can find you at Facebook at returning to compassion and your website is also returning to compassion.com. Yeah. And people can also find you, Ruth, at LinkedIn, too. Ruth Diaz, RTC. So yeah. I invite everyone to connect with Ruth outside of this program today. And is there anything else that you would like for listeners to know before we, before we wrap up? Yeah. I just want to send out gratitude to everyone who has gotten to hear this conversation. And I imagine that, in a way, there's many more conversations to come. So I always invite people to reach out. I have a team working with me. And if you have questions or even feedback, I always value feedback on how I can say things better to reach your heart. Um, Thank you. Thank you for finding a choice to serve consciously and, and reach out and listen to this episode. And thank you, Elizabeth. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much, Ruth, for being here. I, it was just such an inspiring conversation with you again, as always, and uh, filled with some really um, valuable, genuine nuggets of, of wisdom here. And I, and I hope that listeners are able to take away some practical tips that, um, that you can begin to integrate right away. So again, too, you can find Ruth on Facebook at returning to compassion or returning to compassion.com and on LinkedIn. So I do invite you to follow up and connect with Ruth there. You can also find me at servingconsciously.com and the replay for this episode will be posted um, shortly after we air. And um, so I invite you to, to visit over there as well. Again, thank you so much everyone for being here today. This is the last episode of serving consciously for 2018. I want to thank you for your support and your presence and for your interest. 
and wish you all the very, very best at this happy new year and into 2019. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to Serving Consciously. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bishop. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Serving Consciously with your host, Elizabeth Bishop. Consciously create your approach to work. Visit www.elizabethbishopconsulting.com. Join us on every second and fourth Friday at noon to continue rediscovering your passion. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined? rugged at the same time introducing the all-new rav4 hybrid 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful rav4 plus with its head-turning style and breakaway speed it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid the all-new rav4 hybrid toyota let's go places horsepower ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher premium fuel is not used performance will decrease Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Many bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine and More. Cheers!